This is Jamie Dyer welcoming you to another edition of The Crowcast. And I'm delighted to be joined by Tyrone Coates of The Bombers, who you will remember was the band that Alan set up in the late 1980s with um, John Brewster of The Angels. Thanks for joining us, Ty. Obviously, this conversation comes after the sad passing of Alan. Um, where were you and what did you feel when you heard the news? Uh, look, indeed, yeah, look, it was, it was shattering. Um, I got the message um, on Facebook, actually, from Alan's daughter, Tony, um, and, you know, she was obviously, you know, mortified by it all, as was the whole family, especially Dale, that they'd been married for so long, and they were, you know, just a wonderful couple and soulmates for a long, long time. So um, it was an awful thing, and I know that um, it wasn't great for the for the last bit of time he had with us, but um, I know that the family rallied around and they were with him when he passed, so I guess... You know, that was, I guess, if there's a bright side, then I guess that would be it. But, um, yeah, look, I, I just immediately started thinking about all the times we had together in the band and, um, you know, the different forms that that took over the years and, and his guidance and mentorship, if you like. Um, I was kind of, you know, came over into the scene and I joined him briefly in the Party Boys with John and Alan and, and then we uh, started writing and, you know, we, we formed the Bombers, as you know, and... You know, he, he taught me a lot. I used to drive him nuts with questions about, you know, why are you miking up like that? And why are you only putting the guitar up at half volume? And just all of those things, I learned so much. And he taught me how to play a shuffle, which is great. Obviously, um, since then, you have formed your, your new version of the Bombers, which was with Alan and John's Blessing. Um, Definitely. That was a couple of years ago that you started that and you've had the pandemic to deal with and other bits and pieces. It must have been um, interesting to kind of go back and revisit some of that material and that style. Look, it was it was fantastic. I mean, I've always it's always been close to my heart, obviously. And we've you know, since then, we've done other things and, you know, we've gone on different tangents. But just getting back and playing some of those old songs from those days and, um, you know, having Christina, who was Steve's, um, late Steve's wife, obviously getting up and playing. And she plays very similarly to Steve and using his guitars. And, you know, it was just a no brainer that she joined the band. It was just, it was just fantastic. And we, um, had a great rhythm section, of course. And, um, we've got, you know, Caroline and my daughter were up doing backing vocals. So it, it was, it was a wonderful marriage. It was great. Everything worked really well. And then the pandemic hit, we did one gig and the pandemic hit and it derailed us for a little while, but, in between all that, I guess it's a blessing, really, because we started doing live video clips of the old Bomber songs. Um, so that morphed into doing a brand new album. So we got our heads together and wrote a bunch of new songs and got that out here in Australia. And then we um, got picked up by um, Bad Reputation in um, in France, and they released it over there. And that's, that's sort of doing quite well over there, we're happy to say. Um, but as far as live work goes, we probably... You know, we're still waiting on things to pick up in Australia. The, the gigs are starting to pick up and the venues are getting a little bit more confident with being able to book venues, book bands without having been closed down again with, you know, restrictions, etc. So we're just waiting and just seeing what, what, what the next couple of months brings forward. Do you find the people that turn up to the gigs when you do play, uh, are they familiar with the original version of the Bombers? Yeah, look, it's a mixed bag, um, but a lot of the old fans were there, and uh, you know, it was just a, it was an amazing thing, just connecting with them and just seeing some of those old faces again we hadn't seen for so long, and 
um, you know, having a chat. It was really hard to try and catch up with everybody after we finished, but, you know, I guess that's par for the course. But, yeah, it's just good to see so many people still love that stuff out there. Yeah. Well, there's so much great material to choose from, and obviously you wrote a lot of those songs with Alan. What was he like as a songwriting partner? He was awesome. He was you know, considering what Alan had done, his achievements and, and his, you know, the wonderful career that he had, even up until when we'd formed the Bombers, he was always very open-minded and he never, ever once said, oh, you know, look, I, I know better than you and I'm, I'm going to do it this way. He never, ever once did that. He always listened and, you know, was very interested in, in, in hearing my ideas and I guess they were fresh or whatever, but, and, you know, the three of us, John and Alan and I just had a great writing chemistry and it, it was just, you know, wonderful. The ideas we came up with, especially sitting around, you know, John's little studio up in Castle Hill and, you know, we'd have a break and go out and play billiards for 15 or 20 minutes then come back in and do some more writing. And it was just a really nice environment that the, both of those guys provided. So, yeah, it was great. It was a great time. And a, a lot of that material uh, appeared on the live album, from three years ago that finally got released. I think it was sitting in Alan's garage for a long time. Do you remember playing that gig? Oh, look, 100%. It was, um, we'd organised for a mobile studio to come and park outside and it was just torrential rain. And there were times when the guys were sitting in the van in the studio, couldn't hear the band for the rain on the roof of the van. You know, it was, it was just so heavy. And the cables were in the in the gutter, and there's water running down over the cables. It was just we were we were thinking, is this ever going to work? And you know, obviously it did. And Alan had that recording sitting there for quite a while, and then he got you know spurred on to go and do something with it. And we had to be very careful when it was being digitised because because it was a, an old tape, analog tape. Um, you know, too many passes on that tape, the oxid starts coming off, so the tape and the recording would have deteriorated. But you know, the guy that did it, I can't just name escapes me now, but he did a fantastic job and was very mindful of that when he did it and just came up with a, a really great product that we're really, really happy with. Yeah. Um, and it's still available from Barrel and Squidger Records. Um, that performance blew me away because I'd heard Aim High from, you know, 30 years previously. Um, obviously, when that live album was recorded, it was recorded when John Coughlin was in the band so you basically had Quo's backline um behind you or beside you um what was John like to to work with oh he was awesome he was just a lovely guy very laid back and just a powerhouse drummer um and I remember we did one of our first gigs and they had <laughs> it was a little gig down in Melbourne um in in, in the outskirts of Melbourne a really small venue because we started off just doing some warm-up gigs and the people got wind that Alan and John, of course, were in the band and they had this massive big banner said, Rockin' John Coglin, and it was just great and, and he loved it and it was just a really good vibe down there and and him and I hit it off really well and um you know, John's a lovely guy and we obviously spent time, you know, in that initial stage just touring and, and a lot of time in a van, you know, driving up and down the coast doing gigs. And it, it was just awesome and, and it was, you know, that lineup on that night, that was we got our record deal with A and M Records on the back of that live performance. Because when they heard that, they just went, oh, my God, it just sounds so good. And it's warts and all. There's no overdubs. There's no auto-tune. It's, you know, that's exactly how the gig was. Obviously, uh, John, um, John was replaced by Peter on drums. Yes. Um, did that make any difference to the record deal? No, look, no. Uh, look, I guess the drummer, you know, 
the drumming was just a different vibe than John's. It was more of a, you know, Peter was more of a session drummer, a studio drummer, and John was a f fabulous live drummer, studio drummer too, but he just, his forte was live, in my opinion. Um, and then Peter joined us and it, it didn't work out. I think John, you know, wanted to go back to the UK anyway, which which he obviously did. Um, no, it didn't. And the record company were fine with that. They were happy with what they heard from Peter and, and Peter was very cohesive within the band and, you know, slotted straight in. So it really wasn't an issue. Excellent. I mean, that live performance, as I say, um, utterly blew me away. Um, it, there was so much power and passion there and especially like Steve's guitar for those un uninitiated, he was, um, a master at what he did. Yeah, look, he was, and um, thank you. I appreciate you, you know, your positive words on that, and it, it means a lot. But Steve was—he was amazing. He was unique. There will only ever be one Steve. Um, he just—he was a very quiet, very humble man to speak to. But when he got on stage, he just unleashed the beast. And you know, the way he used to, you know, work at the microphone stand and in City Out of Control, he used to do a, a big spot there before John did his harmonica solo, and it was just amazing to watch. Um, sometimes I'd go off stage and just watch from the side of the stage and just go, this is great. I've got to watch this all night. So it was a lot of fun. Yeah, there's there's actually a video of that on YouTube, uh, which is mm -hmm. amazing. Um, yeah, because Obviously, because of the scene and the time it was, there's not much video of the Bombers other than official videos and the odd sort of bootleg. Yeah, look, uh, there's there was a, a gentleman in Australia called um, Paul Liuzzi, and he was a big fan of the Bombers, and he's got all these videos that he's just he's got a little uh website that he posts on like you know legends of rock here in australia and he posts these videos that like I've, i'm just blown away that it's they're great and they sound really good but it's a technology back 30 years ago so you know it's, it's just good to see some of those songs that never ever got properly recorded you know or videoed I know that Alan would be, you know, stoked. I know that he saw some of those things when, when uh, this gentleman, Paul, started releasing them, and he loved it because it was just bringing back the memories, and I'm, I'm sure he would, you know, have continued to love seeing that stuff come back. You know, songs like Shelter from the Rain, and which which is an old Angel song, and I'd forgotten we ever did that song, and, and I heard it, and, and it just sounded great. So, you know, I just loved the guys in the band and, and the way especially Alan would just button down that rhythm section and him and John were great but him and Peter Heckenberg were very good too and you know it was just so super tight and it was just driving power the whole time it's just awesome yeah well um regular listeners to the podcast have asked a few questions uh, that I said I would ask you on the um on on this particular edition um Dan asks um well he asks what what's uh, your favorite song of Alan's that you like to perform that I wrote with Alan or from uh, the Quo days? Or? Just in general, like any any song that Alan had something to do with in the writing terms. I think Worlds on Fire would be have to be one of my favourites. And, and I remember we wrote that together and Alan had a lot of input in that one. I mean, that was one of our earlier ones that we did when the three of us got together. And I think that would have to be my favourite. And it's, you know, quite poignant now even, you know, with um, the, the trouble that's happening in the world now. And you watch that video and you think, oh, wow, you know, it's, it's quite it's quite imp impacting there is a nice mixture of of sort of as you say poignancy and just good rock songs in that catalog of bombers material um the one that comes to mind that's sort of a mixture of the two is crime investigator um okay. do you remember how that came about 
Yeah, look, it, that was a weird one. And it was, you know, to be honest with you, that was never one of my favourite tracks. But so many people that came to the gigs, and they were saying, when, are you going to do Crime Investigator? Because I don't play, I haven't played sax for a long time. So, you know, it would take me a while to get my embouchure back again. But, it, you know, it, it's just morphed into one of those songs that it just happens to be a favourite with a lot of a lot of people. And I remember we wrote that song um, at John Brewster's house and the three of us up there and, it just it was it started off really weird. There was a chord pattern, and then I took it home and I thought, what am I going to do with the vocals with this? It's like it's just it was really doing my head in. And then we eventually, I eventually came up with this idea, and then Alan said, yeah, great, let's run with that. Let's do let's do. Why don't you do this and why don't you do that? And before we knew it, we had what you're hearing now. So yeah, well, it's good. it is awesome. Everything sort of comes together nicely. And why why did you stop playing sax when I? I thought, why did I stop? I remember when I left the Bombers, I started doing some other projects on the side and um, I ended up playing rhythm guitar. So I wanted to focus on that and just get, become a good rhythm guitar player. Um, and now that's morphed into, you know, doing lead as well. But um, back that, back at the time, I just kind of let the sax go by the wayside because there really wasn't a need for me to play it in the stuff we were doing at the time. It just wasn't, wasn't you know, saxophone friendly kind of thing. So, and that's probably the reason why. And I just didn't pick it up again. So when was the last time that you would have played with Alan? Would that have been the mid-90s? Because I believe you played on his EP. Yes, when, that's right, yeah. Um, we also did some gigs with um, Lancaster Bombers, like when Alan went out and he was kind of fronting the band, and I ended up joining the band in the later stages, playing rhythm guitar and, and you know doing some vocals as well. So we did some of the old Bombers catalogue in the band. And we also did, you know, quite a lot of the quo stuff, obviously, because that's what people wanted to hear, and it was, it was, you know, relevant, obviously. Um, so I'd say that, you know, those gigs I did with him, and also the recording of the Matchstick Men EP would have been the last time, yeah. Yeah. Well, I've got another question here um, mm -hmm. from Ant, who asks, "What songs, in addition to those on the recent live album, did they perform live back in the day?" Ah, okay, good question. We did um, we did a couple of Angel songs. Uh, we did um, Alan recorded uh, the Doors song Roadhouse Blues, so we obviously had that in the set. And we did um, Shelter from the Rain. I think we did um, I think we did Marseille, which was a, a a big hit with the Angels, and I think they had a fairly decent sized hit with that in the States too back in, back in that at that time. Um, but mainly it was. You know, I think we also did Fortunate Son by John Fogarty because, you know, I basically, you know, formulated my whole singing style on, on listening to Creedence Clearwater Revival when I was a kid. So um, those are the ones that come to mind that I guess were really popular with the audience. Yeah, well, it's it's always good to have a, a mixture of things in there. And obviously, Alan had been in the Party Boys and he'd recorded, um, he performed live a couple of songs from from quo how much material from quo did he bring into the bombers like were there any that were kind of left by the wayside that you didn't end up performing for example um the songs that the quo recorded or um were just songs that perhaps he brought from quo because obviously you mentioned um john brewster and the angels and there were a lot of angel songs in there were there any quo songs that uh he maybe wanted to perform but yeah, we, well, we, we, we did backwater. Yeah, we, we did back. Sorry, yeah, we, we did backwater, which was you know Alan's song, and that's just a great song. I love that song, and I loved playing it, playing it on guitar. That was that was a real buzz for me. And 
Um, he also, we did roll over, lay down, which was just, you know, I, I remember when I was a young kid, about 17, I just got my driver's license and I was living in the country and I drove to Perth in Western Australia and it was my first time away from home on my own in my own car. It was just unbelievable. And I pulled up at this service station to get some petrol and there must have been a band not far away rehearsing and they were doing roll over, lay down. And I hadn't heard the song before. And I went, what the hell is that song? It was just that dun 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 and I just blew me away. And I immediately went and found out what the song was and, you know, found out about status quo. But that was probably my first introduction. So that was that was really memorable for me. And we used to do that live and that, that just used to kill it. Um, and um, whatever you want, we did as well. And that was a challenge for me because my job was playing that intro on, on rhythm guitar. Um and, you know, doing Rick's parts, I mean, you know, Rick's obviously, he was one of the best rhythm guitar players known in the universe. And, you know, having to learn those parts was quite challenging. But um, with Alan's guidance, and it was, you know, fairly strict guidance, he was looking over my shoulder and saying, yeah, come on, you're playing that right, watch that note there, make sure that C's there. And it was great. So we, we worked it out and, you know, and that was one of the favourites as well. The rock scene in Australia is immense. Um, there is a huge scene out there. How did status quo obviously when alan was in it how did how did they fit into that whole thing in your opinion oh uh, look i think they, they were huge and when i was still living in the country before i actually moved to the city um i had a friend and he was in a band with me because we were just you know kids then and he was a massive status quo fan and we'd often drive to gigs or just you know we were hanging out driving around in his car and he'd always have status quo playing and you know one of the songs that really stuck in my head from that time was rain i thought what a great guitar i just love that that whole thing and just the shuffle thing and how you know that boogie i just really love that boogie and what was just an amazing experience is when the frantic four reformed um, and I was living in the UK at the time and Alan contacted me. He said, look, we, we're doing some gigs. Would you like to come along? And I said, of course, it'd be great to catch up. So Kaz, my wife and I went along and, and Alan and Dale, Alan's wife, were just so gracious. They looked after us. They came and picked us up and took us down to the, the O2. It was just amazing. They're just lovely people. That goes without saying. But um, And we just had the best time. But the thing that really stuck in my mind was just how tight they still were. You know, no one plays boogie like those guys. It was just amazing. So, yeah, that was. I'll take that take that away with me, and I'll, I'll live with that memory for a long time. A lot of Guo fans will will think the same. Uh, the crowd in those gigs was immense. Oh, I know it was. Yes, and everyone was just so. Um, it was just an electric atmosphere. Everybody was so excited to see these guys, the four original four members back together again and just doing what they did best. And they just didn't disappoint. They were just unbelievable. Just loved it. Did you speak to Alan after that? Did he ever sort of, did he want to continue with that or did he kind of uh, accept that that was, that was that? Look, Alan and I often spoke, you know, on and off, but um we didn't really get on, get onto that. I didn't push him about it, and and he didn't. He just said that it was amazing, and we often talked about how great the band was. And he said, yeah, it was lovely to get back with the guys, I guess, and and maybe mend some bridges, and you know, just sort of get that, you know, get some of that stuff out of the way that may, might have been dogging them for a long time. But, um, you know, I think he really enjoyed the gigs. I think that at the end of it, he was, you know, physically a little bit drained from it. Um, so I think that possibly doing another tour like that might might have been out of the question for him. 
um, physically, but he was still, you know, sharp, sharp as mentally. And we, we spoke often and um, he's, he had some songs he was writing still right up until the end. And he said, I wouldn't mind getting you to come and do a vocal on one or two of these tracks. Uh, which I never, ever heard, um, unfortunately. But um, he was speaking about it. He said, oh, these songs are great. And there's a bit of interest with them. And so he was just passionate, you know. He was just totally passionate right through. With everything that had happened previously, the fact that that passion still remained and he was still as, as passionate. I actually spoke to Alan 11 years ago. Um, I interviewed him when I was a, a new interviewer i'd never really interviewed anybody before and he was just so gracious and i i remember i've got the recording somewhere of him you know just allowing me to go off on these tangents and being very generous with his time because um i told him at the beginning of the interview oh um it'll, it'll only take about 10 minutes 45 minutes later we're still talking <laughs> and um, he did mention sort of wanting to do it again, which I thought was really, you know, especially given at that time, that was just before Hello Quo and only a couple of years before the reunion tour. Um, you know, we weren't to know what was to happen next. And he was so kind of positive and upbeat. Always. He always was. And you know, one thing I really loved about Alan, I guess, as far as a musical career goes, it doesn't get much more of a pinnacle than doing a Royal Command performance. So you could almost forgive him if he was a little aloof or a little arrogant, but he just wasn't. And I remember doing some of those gigs and some of the, when we first started with the Bombers, some of the smaller venues, it might have been maybe, you know, 80 or 100 people there. And if anybody came up and wanted to chat with Alan, he would stop what he was doing and he'd go and make time. And he just, it didn't matter who it was, he'd just go and shake their hand and, you know, how did it sound? And, you know, just ask them for their feedback and, these people are just like, you know, completely blown away by it. And that's one thing I took away from, and I've always maintained that through my career, and I, I got that from Al, is that, you know, always make sure you, you give people time because, you know, you were there once. You know, he never forgot where he came from, and, and I really admired him for that. Well, for him in the late 80s to basically start again and, you know, form this band with, with John Brewster and, and yourself – and you ended up supporting some quite big bands in Australia, didn't you? Yeah, that we did. And the, probably the most notable one is we did we toured the whole country with Alice Cooper. And, you know, the biggest compliment we got was when Alice and the guys would come out and watch us before, you know, they went on. And often you'd see them down at the mixing desk just bopping away to, to our stuff. And we exchanged T-shirts at the end of the tour. And it, and John Brewster and, and um, Alice would go out and play, you know, nine holes regularly on the tour. Because, uh, as you know, Alice is an avid golfer. And so is John Brewster. John Brewster is a very, very good golfer too. So the relationship there between, you know, the two bands was just phenomenal. And, and we obviously signed to A&M and um, we were on the eve of our tour to go to the US. And, uh, you know, Alice asked us, you know, how would we feel about touring the US with him? So, and of course, we, you know, we're just over the moon about that. And then just we, we had visas and everything was kind of underway. And then the rug got pulled out from under our feet because we, we, you know, the record company changed and we kind of, you know, we got sent down the priority list because we inherited Polygram in Australia, but they had many other acts before us that they'd signed that they had to get away. So we kind of had to, you know, wait in the queue kind of thing. And then, you know, it was a time sensitive thing and it just, you know, it just sort of, you know, didn't, didn't quite happen for us the way we wanted it to. That is really unfortunate. And it's one of those things, you know, 
nobody kind of foresees that beforehand. And that's right. And, you know, you could get all bent out of shape about it. But the thing is, is I think we all realise that not so much John and Alan, but the other guys in the band, we got to do some stuff that we would probably never get an opportunity to do again. Like we did Countdown, um, you know, we did MTV and we did, you know, so many great things and so many great tours. We toured with Cheap Trick and, you know, uh, Skid Row and some of the other great big bands. And it was you know, playing on some of those big arena stages and those stadiums was just amazing. And and without, you know, Alan and John having the profile they had, maybe we wouldn't have got that opportunity. That's an interesting thing. You know, can you elaborate more on that? Do you think perhaps their history in the music industry kind of helped them? Oh, look, absolutely. I mean, it, it definitely, without a doubt, opened doors for us when we first got the bombers off the ground. Um, and, you know, we obviously, as you probably know, we had Bob Young, who was status quo's tour manager and harmonica player and he ended up being our manager out in australia and he he'd um he'd commute often excuse me between the uk and australia and he was he was a wonderful guy too and you know very uh very knowledgeable he just um you know he had the right contacts and and he was great and it was because of obviously alan's contact that we were able to work with bob as well so you know we there was just a lot of things happened that John and Alan, or Alan especially, was able to open those doors for us and create those opportunities. And you got to do all that amazing stuff, which is great. But you you had a career after that, didn't you? What, what did you um, What did you do afterwards? I know that you did away from music. You did martial arts. Yeah, look, I did martial arts. I'd always done martial arts, and um, you know, the things in, in the music business in Australia, we went through a bit of a, a flat spot in the early nineties, um, and I found that. You know, I had a mortgage and I had a couple of little kids and I thought, you know what, I can either keep on beating my head against the wall for the next five years and making them suffer or I can take this other opportunity and fall back on my martial arts background because I got an opportunity to come up to join a club and do it full time. And it was it was fantastic because I ended up um, having the opportunity to go and open up the club in Houston, Texas, and I spent five years there. And then I went and looked after the London operation for the club in um in the UK in for I think seven years so I was gone about 12 years and that was great but I'd always kept the music thing up I'd always you know it wasn't a full-time thing obviously because I had the the club and then the corporate thing you know which the two sort of were hand in hand and then um, we decided that we needed to come back to Australia because we had obviously family out here and those years you just don't get back so we decided to come back and I and I thought look I'm going to leave the martial arts because my knees and shoulders were sort of you know taking us toll so I thought, look, I'm going to get back into the music thing. And I thought, maybe I'm kidding myself. Maybe, you know, maybe it's a bit late. Maybe I missed the bus here. But we started putting together some acts and everyone remembered. And then, you know, it was just, you know, Bob's your uncle and we were doing music full time again. So it was just great. So I feel very blessed that I was able to do the two passions in my life and and, and give them a good, good crack, you know, like the music and the martial arts. So, you know, I'm forever grateful. Yeah, that that is amazing and obviously the kind of vocals that you do are very big um thank you what was your uh kind of ritual for warming up the voice back in the day and how does it compare to how you do things now look i used to make sure that i when when i had the opportunity i used to run a lot i was very much into fitness in the in the rock and roll band days especially the bombers when we were on tour We'd arrive at the next town, and the first thing I'd do is put my jogging gear on and go for a run, find an oval somewhere, and do multiple laps of the oval. And often I'd try and get a little run in before I'd go on stage and just, you know, do some of because I had some opera training way back in the day, a long time ago. And some of the warm up procedures that they went through, 
I'd employ those before we went on stage so that when I got on stage, from the first song, my voice was warmed up because often singers don't do that and they get up and it takes two or three songs to warm their voice up and that's where it can take its toll, especially when you've got a tour where you're doing seven gigs straight when you don't get a break. And I remember that first run of gigs, we did 21 gigs straight without a break. It was just like, bang, you know, three weeks. And it was brutal. But fortunately, because I had this knowledge about my voice that I'd gone and got lessons to learn about, my voice was on day 21 was pretty much the same as it was on day one. So, you know, that was great. I was very, very fortunate to have that knowledge to be able to preserve my voice. Otherwise, it could have been catastrophic. Well, you sound uh, in fine form on Man Down, which is the new album uh recent album by ty coates bombers um have you started well you've started doing gigs for that haven't you to promote that yeah well as i said we started doing gigs and then the covid thing hit so we haven't gone out since then because you know like the venues are still a little bit cautious i think things are starting to you know ramp up now so i'm, I'm hoping to get something you know happening in the next you know couple of months and get some dates in but um Look, you know, it's been well received and and the guys did a remarkable job on it. We've just got this amazing young drummer and he he's quite an amazing young man called Ryan Matheson and he has his own drum academy, which he started from scratch. He went to uni and got his degree in music and he has about 50 students and he does it full time. But when he's in the studio, he's just, he's just amazing. Like he'll one or two takes and it's done because he does his homework, he talks through what he needs to get done, and he says, do you want this and do you want that? And how about I try that? And how about I try this? And you go, great. And he just nails it. He's just fantastic. And then, you know, Mick, Mick Carter on bass is just phenomenal too. So it's just a great rhythm section. It's not, you know, it's it's a little different to what the Bombers was, but it's still driving and, and you know, it's still got that, that spice, which I love. Yeah, I, I love the fact that on that album, you've got the, the two tracks from the original Bombers, that you've re-recorded um is it no danger and uh get up and get it on which to me uh, that song in particular almost sounds like a hybrid of angels and quo kind of coming together and i thought it was such a lovely almost like tribute to the original band to put that on on the album especially since it was a b-side originally it was it's, it's great you look at it that way and it's always been a favorite song of mine because the lyric on it is just about you know, just not being negative about anything. You just, you know, just get up there and get it, get get it going. You know, don't sit around and wallow in pity or anything. It's just like, you know, life. You're going to be dead a lot longer than you're alive, so you need to live your life now, kind of thing. And that's really what the song's about. It's just an uplifting song. And I remember when we were on the plane to Canberra was our opening night on the Alice Cooper tour, and we had a set. I think we had about eight songs. It was just a, a fairly short set to open up for him. And we had a, another song, I think She's a Mystery, was, I can't remember what it was now, another song that was going to be opening song, and I just said to John and Alice, look, we've got to open the set with this, get up and get it on. And it was great because John starts off with the guitar, and then, um, you know, it was just like a one one plays in, then the drums come in, then the band kicks in, and then I come in with the vocals. So it was, it was just a, like a, an onion, you know, all these layers. It was just fantastic, and it just... The people loved it. They'd never heard the song before, but just because of the, the way the song was delivered by these guys, it just went off. It was just great. Well, Man Down is available uh, out there. It's uh, it's online. You can order it, can't you? You can, yes. Liveinthedreammusic.com and just go to the shop and it's available in there. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Well, I will let you get on because I'm sure you're extremely busy uh, with bits and pieces, but do you have sort of, 
when you think of Alan, do you have like one overriding memory or is it a mixture of things? Uh, look, I think I just used to love talking to Alan. And, you know, you know, sometimes when you have a conversation with somebody, especially somebody who's, you know, very accomplished or very famous and, you know, you'll be talking and all of a sudden I'll start talking over you. Alan never, ever, ever once that I can remember ever did that. So whatever I was talking about, he'd listen to it, he'd digest it, then he'd answer it. He was just, just, just a lovely, amicable, amicable guy like that. And he just had these incredible people skills. When you see him talking to, it could be anybody. Like I mentioned before at the gigs, he'd, he'd talk to, you know, the people that came to the gigs and he was just a lovely guy, you know, and, you know, I, I miss him a lot. And he was taken way too soon and, you know, he just his accomplishments and just everything he stood for. He's a fantastic husband, a fantastic father. He was just, you know, just a all around good bloke. Well, his uh, contribution obviously lives on uh, as Quo continue and as you continue with the Bombers. Um, I wish you all the best with it. And uh, is is there any chance of coming to the UK doing some gigs in the UK? Well, you know, never say never. I don't know. Who knows what the future holds? I'd love to. I mean, I'd really love to. I mean, there's. I'd love to do a tour with with John. You know, I think John's you know winding things back a little bit with um with John Coglin's quote too. But I would have always loved to have. In fact, when he was coming out to Australia to tour before, uh, I was going to be in the band with him, and that was going to be amazing. So we were going to be doing. I was going to be taking you know doing the um the Francis Rossi parts, doing lead guitar and lead vocals, but it didn't happen because. Things just went awry with a promoter out here, and it, it just didn't happen. So it was just, it turned out to be, you know, it wasn't logistically possible for those guys to come all the way out to Australia to do the gigs. And I was mortified about that because I was so looking forward to playing with John again and just catching up and, and touring. It would have been great, but um, it wasn't to be. But, when, you know, when would who, that have been? Knows? That was 2017. I think I want to say I think it was 2000, maybe 18, maybe 2018. Yeah, yeah but they had the dates and everything in, and I was like, I was you know head down and tail up in the studio, learning all the songs and all the licks, you know, lick note for note kind of thing. And then oh, about six weeks of that, and I said the tour was off, and I went no. <laughs> but you know, that's that's the rock and roll. That's what happens. Maybe one day for like a one-off gig or something would be nice. Yeah, it'd be lovely. It'd be great. I'd love to. I'd really. Love, I mean, I'd love the UK. I love. I lived there for seven years. I lived in Hertfordshire, you know, just north of London. There, and it was just, just such a. They're awesome people, and you know what I love about the UK is the rock and roll audiences. Is when you know those tiny little gigs you play in, where you got to duck your head to get in the door, and you know you got a tiny little area to set the band up in. The, the people just loved it. They just loved music, and they really appreciated the live music scene. So I miss that. Well, I do wish you all the best with the Bombers and your other projects. Thank you so much, Tyrone, for being on the podcast today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me, Jamie. (laughs) 